Hello and welcome to the Omniscious Podcast. We're your hosts, Brian and Vlad. And today's episode, we are going to be interviewing Sandy Davis, a former CS and math teacher, about her experience with teaching CS and math at a high school level, as well as some challenges she faced with things like plagiarism. Enjoy! So today's guest is Sandy Davis. She's a former software consultant, also a former high school math and computer science teacher, who is currently teaching an aerospace course for high school students online, and of course is a current OMSCS student as well. So Sandy, why don't you start with a quick intro about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. Well, like you said, I started out in software consulting. I was in that for about five years when I started to realize that that may not be my long-term path. On a whim, I took some education classes. I had always thought about teaching and figured I would see what it was like. Through that process, I did teacher observations where you shadow a teacher for a day. And one of those teachers actually reached out to me afterwards and told me he was leaving mid-year for personal reasons and wanted to know if I would take his classes. I was absolutely unsure, but the consulting firm I was working for was wonderful. They let me take a leave of absence and I walked into a classroom on a Monday morning and started teaching. It was actually math at that time. That's how I got into teaching. I did eventually finish my teaching licensure. I also went on to get a master's in education. The first few weeks of teaching were really hard, and I questioned the decision often. Probably a few months in, though, is when everything started to click, and I realized this was for me, and I gave notice at my consulting firm, and I went on for the next 10 years to teach both math and computer science in high school. After I had my third child, even working part-time was too much. So I decided to stay home full time. And I was able to find uh, a really amazing uh, online program to teach for. It's a partnership with NASA Langley Research Center. It's for high school juniors. So I'm able to teach that during the year and stay connected to the classroom and still be part of education, even though I'm not formally in the classroom right now. So this computer science course that you taught, does it count for elective credit? Or is it like a math credit that can maybe replace other math courses? I actually taught three separate computer science classes. The first one is just called computer science, and that can be used as a math elective. Every state is different, um, but in Virginia, it was a math elective. I also taught in an international baccalaureate school, and so I, was, I taught the standard level and the higher level computer science courses there. And those two courses, uh, similar to AP, You can get college credit if you do well on the end of year exams. So the standard level course is the equivalent of the first semester of a college computer science class. And then the higher level course is the equivalent of the second semester of a a college computer science class. I'm quite familiar with the IB program in high school. What was the curriculum focused on for computer science-specific courses in this IB program? So did it focus on some basics of uh, data structures and algorithms? To do the IB program, we assume one year of computer science so that the students come in knowing Java. We do allow students into the class without that if they can demonstrate that they already know how to program from home or somewhere else. Uh, But the assumption is they already know Java. We're not teaching them to program in that class. Um, What we do is we pick up with basically object-oriented programming, data structures like stacks, queues, linked lists, 
we actually, I would actually have them program a linked list from scratch, for instance. We don't use the Java libraries just so that they can really understand the data structures. We also go into recursion, inheritance, and polymorphism. And then the IB class is a little bit different from the AP computer science course in that we also cover the basics of networks, operating systems, control systems, so topics that AP doesn't necessarily go into. IB goes into that, as well as some of the ethical implications, privacy, security, automation, self-driving cars. We actually spend some time on that and discuss the responsibility that computer scientists have in those particular hot-button issues. So for a high school class, it must be difficult maybe getting their attention with uh, some of these complex topics. Do you use any kind of like games or what kind of projects do you have in your classes to gain interest? Um, the IB students don't need a lot of encouragement. They, they've chosen to take that class, those two classes. They are super enthusiastic. I always would joke, I, I don't even think I needed to show up. They would probably work and do just fine if I wasn't there. They were so into it. Um, the computer science elective, though, the first course in the sequence, that's the class where we certainly had some students that didn't really want to be there. Um, their counselor encouraged them or their parents told them to sign up, but they didn't necessarily want to take computer science. For, for those students, um, we have a, a number of ways we try to keep them engaged. One way is graphics. A lot of the students, especially the ones that enjoy art, we let them play around with images, so we show them how to manipulate the RGB color scale so we can, what happens when you remove the red, or what happens when you double the blue? What does your image look like? How do you make something grayscale? So they get to do all that, and they, they do a really good job with it. They, you know, they'll take a, a picture and make it black and white, and then the flower in the picture is red. What I would do is I would let them create this amazing piece of artwork, and then I would print it out on a color printer, and we'd hang them up. Games are also big for students. They can program Battleship. Some, some of them like to do just simple games like Pong. Those kinds of games uh, and projects keep them relatively engaged. We also try to let them, for some projects, work together, which, which some of them enjoy and some of them don't. So again, it's, it's a balance. Some things really grab some kids and then other, you know, the rest of them you try to grab in a different way. Do you guys utilize any version control software? We don't. The students all have a drive through the county. We usually tell them create a folder in that drive specifically for the course. What's nice about that is I, the teacher can view that. So that allows us to spot check code. We do often check for plagiarism, which we do find a lot, especially at this level. Even, even at the college level, I think it's hard to know what is the difference between helping and cheating. So we do we talk about that. We don't use version control, though. There's actually, as far as I know, I don't know that our county has anything installed for that. Now, <laughs> the students are smart. They actually, they know about GitHub. So they, a lot of them will post their code up there. And we have to talk about that, about whether, you know, having public repositories of your classwork is acceptable or not. So they know about it, but we don't use it in the class. Oh, that's interesting. You brought up plagiarism. So I know that's something that a lot of universities and any kind of institution that teaches computer science struggles with because with code, it's not clear what constitutes plagiarism. You know, we, we reuse a lot of concepts and maybe even tutorials or code segments from Stack Overflow. So what, in your opinion, constitutes plagiarism versus just, you know, getting help from the Internet? 
Well, I give, I give the students some, some guidelines. The first is you never, ever email code. You can sit with your friend and you can talk to them. I don't even care if you have your code open on your computer and you're talking to them about it, but they, are not, they, they know they can never email code because that is just way too easy to use that code or to use large chunks of that code. You know, we talk about um, what is the difference between getting help with a specific how-to. So how do I convert this CSV file into something I can use? Well, if it's two or three lines of code from the internet, that's probably okay because that's a that's a pretty standard operation. There's not a lot of creativity that goes into that. It's more just how do I use this library or how do I do that? When it comes to algorithms, that an algorithm is more complex. And so, when it comes to an algorithm, certainly you can use something from the internet as a guide, but then you need to recreate that. It, you need to do that in a way that's your own. And if if and I show them sort of the ways to compare code and how to, if two things look extremely similar, then that's going to be considered cheating. There are quite a few issues, you know, and challenges, I guess, with plagiarism that we see our current OMSCS professors have, especially with the way that they, in that you track whether something has been plagiarized or not. What did you use in high school to track whether the work has been plagiarized or not? Because I had way fewer students than a college professor would, often I just looked at their code. I had a lot of my students for three years. So by the second year, I knew their ability level. And so if I saw something that was really amazing, like using using concepts we hadn't even learned in class yet, obviously I got suspicious and would talk to them about it. We do have Moss plagiarism detector installed. I did not use it very often just because I had few enough students that, and I knew them well enough that I could sort of spot check their code and figure out what was going on. I also knew which students worked together and I would look at their code a little bit more closely. Um, so I, I didn't have I didn't use a lot of formal methods. It was more just um, looking at their code and knowing them. Um, again, it was pretty obvious when, when many of them did that because they would, um, for instance, you know, they would use some library that we had never talked about in class. It was something that I knew that a first year student in Java would probably not be able to do on their own. And then I would talk to them and they were always honest. They'd say, yeah, I got this here. And we would talk through why that may not be allowed, especially in college. Again, a lot of the time it wasn't necessarily intentional. There's just a lack of clarity in what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. That's a great point that you make, the lack of clarity. You know, I think a lot of it is unintentional. That's that's a good point. When I was actually a TA in college, there was a very, very intentional example where a student was asked to create like a Yahtzee game and they created craps, which was from the year prior. And so I think uh, it was like the same assignment number and that one was pretty obvious. But for the most part, it was exactly that. It was like, oh, hey, you know, I've seen this strip of code used by a couple other students. If you Google that problem, you find that it's the top result on Stack Overflow. Most of the time it was something small or minor. So it was, you know, obviously unintentional. I would just have very honest conversations with them. I'd say, why are you in this class? Because they didn't have to take that class. So you're choosing to take this college level class. I would ask them, you know, raise your hand if you're going to major or minor in computer science. And pretty much all of them would raise their hands. And I said, well, you need to know how binary search trees work. That, that's something that you're going to be expected to understand. So if you're going to go copy the code off the Internet, even if I don't catch you, what's going to happen when you're in college and you're expected to understand this? This is on you. This isn't my problem. This is something you're going to deal with. 
and realize that's why you're here. Then I am with grades, especially at the IB level. I tell them, don't worry about the grade. If you work hard and if you give me 100% effort and if you're willing to take some risks, your, your grade's going to be fine. So it's not about the grade. It's about what you go into college knowing, because this is something you want to study for the next four years. That's a good way to reach those students. That's not necessarily going to reach the kids in the elective class that may never take computer science again. But at least for the kids that are really into it, just explaining to them that they are expected to understand this. So who cares what grade they get? Do they understand it? No, this is a great point. I was actually thinking about the IB program and how intensive it is and I had a computer science in, in my bachelor degree and I took took some programming classes in high school but you know what I feel like when I graduated and I had to build web applications right it's the new era of the web and I felt like I was really unprepared do you feel like some of the curriculum and the computer science classes in high schools could be a bit more practical my standpoint is you're not teaching a specific language. Obviously, the language will, will change. You're teaching how to think, how to come up with an algorithm, how to represent that algorithm on a piece of paper so that someone can follow it. You're teaching them the limits of, of programming languages. So, you know, teaching them how to use a specific library in Java, yeah, they may or may not use that ever, but they'll know how to search through the API. They'll know how to read the API. So whatever problem they have in the future, hopefully they'll be able to find what they need and, and then implement it. I think if you teach the thought processes and the approaches well, then a lot of the other details really don't matter. It'll change as they move through their career. They'll still do fine. And they, they actually do. I keep in touch with a lot of them. They'll email me from college. And what's neat is they do great. And they, they're always excited to tell me, oh, I'm you know, helping everyone in my class. And Nobody else understands this, but I was able to, you know, teach a couple kids. That's what's neat is that they're retaining it and they're using it and they actually feel like they are the best in their class, which especially some of them when they were in my class, they didn't feel that way. So it's, it's neat to see them evolve and realize how much they actually know. I know there's quite a few students in the OMSCS program who come into the program without any previous background in CS. So this is probably a pretty similar experience to what teaching CS at a high school students are, are like. So what kind of pointers would you give to these new OMSCS students to help them start off with the CS basics? There's a lot of great options that, where you can learn from home, obviously. There's different online tutorials. What I've seen a lot of people do is just ask through like the Google Plus, whatever forum they're on with other students, Slack, it doesn't matter. Just ask, what's the best way to learn Java or what's the best way to learn Python or whatever the language is? Because in a lot of cases, for instance, I, my background is in Java. I don't know Python, but I've kind of forced myself to learn it in the last few months because I know I'm going to need it. So I think even people with a computer science background don't know everything and they've, they've had to go out and find resources to, to learn a new language or a new concept. So asking through those channels, you'll get some really good advice. In the high school world, there are very few people with a computer science background who can teach computer science. So what they do is they take math teachers who are interested and they send them to the local community college for their summer or Java class. So I wouldn't discount that as an option. Does a local community college have a relatively inexpensive Java course or Python course or something where you can get a more formal basis in it? That's another option that people might want to take. I think it's all about finding the right tutorial or the right course and then just diving into the language. 
that I think one of the hardest parts is figuring out what errors mean. So that's where Stack Overflow and other sources come in handy. I tell my students that too. I say, all right, you know, you have that error. What do you think it means? And if they don't know, we Google it and I show them which sites are better than others for figuring out what, where to go from there. That's exactly where I started when I started with programming. You see so many errors in such a big variety. You have no idea what that means. That's probably the hardest part and the most useful. Thank you for, uh, for spending the time with us, Sandy. Uh, we're sort of around our usual time for the podcast. And as always, we always ask our um, fellow students, what has been your favorite class in the OMSCS program so far? I would probably say it. Knowledge-based artificial intelligence was was wonderful. Um, I, I really enjoyed the, the problem-solving aspect of it. I had never done anything with images, and so to have to really dig down into the images and the transformations, that was a, a good exercise to figure out. The lectures and the supportive nature of the instructors really was a great experience. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for being here with us today, Sandy. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. As always, we'd like to ask that you take a moment to answer a short survey after the show. It would really help us to be able to increase the quality of our episodes, as well as cover materials that would be interesting to students. Have a good day.